0: York Theatre Royal podcast where we interview industry professionals and get an insight into the theatre world.
1: I'm Jessie and I'm Henry and in this episode we interview Catherine Love, arts journalist, theatre critic and academic.
0: Catherine writes for The Guardian, The Stage, Time Out, What's On Stage, Exeunt and is a regular contributor to the Theatre Voices podcast.
1: Alongside all this she teaches at the University of York and the University of Manchester. In this episode, we talk about mental health in the arts, arts education, problematic revivals, and the issues of objectivity and subjectivity in arts journalism.
0: And if you don't know what any of that means, hold tight, all will be explained.
1: Hope you enjoy! So, we're here with Catherine Love, arts journalist, theatre critic, and academic. Hello, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, do you want to start by introducing yourself, like where you come from, like your story? Sure. So, um, I I suppose thinking
2: about uh, my role as a a theatre journalist and um, theatre critic, I first started writing about theatre about uh, eight or nine years ago. Now, Um, I was in my final year of doing uh, an English degree, and I'd always wanted to write, uh, but never, and I'd always enjoyed theatre, but I'd never thought about bringing those two things together Um, and then sort of partly by uh, by sort of lucky lucky coincidence I ended up uh, doing a little bit of work experience at What's On Stage which is uh, an an online theatre magazine, really enjoyed that uh, and set up a blog which I suppose was the start of of my journey towards uh, becoming a theatre critic, professional theatre critic. Uh, And uh, I yeah start initially was just writing on my own blog, then began writing for um, other for for online magazines, eventually for places uh, like the Guardian and the Stage, who I write for now, as well as Exeunt, which is again another online theatre magazine. Um, And that and alongside that now, um, uh, as you said in the introduction, I also work as an academic. Uh, So. After finishing my undergraduate degree, I went, uh, went out, tried to uh, sort of make a, make a living as a freelance arts journalist with part-time jobs on the side uh, and, and, you know, was, was sort of making some headway with that but found myself actually really missing academia. So I went back and did a master's in theatre and performance and then a PhD. Um, uh, and now I teach uh, a few different universities, including the University of York. Um, so at the moment, I'm sort of part-time academic, part-time theatre critic um, and combine those two things. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your research that you did for your PhD? Or Sure. Um, so my PhD was looking at the um, perceived divide in contemporary English theatre between what gets called text-based and non-text-based theatre. Uh, just to sort of quickly summarise what those two... <laughs> what I mean by those two things, text-based theatre tends to refer to shows that start with a pre-written script, usually a sort of solo-authored pre-written script, whereas non-text-based is a kind of umbrella term that gets used for everything else, so devised, improvised, co-written. Um, and my, uh, my research is, uh, my, my PhD thesis is essentially arguing that that's a false binary, um, and that we need to rethink the relationship, sort of our understanding of the relationship between text and performance. Um, so a lot of my research has been uh, looking at that that relationship between text and performance, as well as how institutions like the Arts Council um, and the way in which work is funded uh, has contributed to this kind of this uh, binary between between um, different types of of new theatre being made in. England specifically, although it can, you know kind of a, can be applied beyond, but my research has been specifically looking at England, um, and then I've also done other little bits and pieces of research linked to that sort of, um, So, for instance, I've written a book about um, Tim Crouch's play *An Oak Tree*, just a short little book about that, um, and he was also he was also one of the uh, theatre makers that I wrote about in my PhD because he in- makes work makes work that's kind of interestingly. Um, straddled those those positions of sort of text based and non text based, and I would argue show you know demonstrates that actually that it's not a binary relationship. If that makes sense. Yeah, true.
0: Okay, so um, one of your relatively recent articles that um, you wrote for the Guardian uh, covered a lot about mental health in mm-hmm. the arts. So do you think it's a big problem that the arts industry is currently facing?
2: I mean, I think. I think it is. I think it is a problem that the arts industry uh, is facing, and, and maybe needs to take more action on. I think it's not restricted to the arts. I think there's a you know there's a sort of mental mental health crisis in in lots of different industries, as well as um, you know in in sort of higher education, for instance. That there's been lots recently about men- you know about mental health uh, problems in higher education, um, but specifically in the arts. I think there's there are kind of Perhaps particular pressures that might exacerbate existing mental health problems or that might um, impact negatively upon um, the mental health of artists. Uh, the, the article that I, that I wrote that you mentioned was specifically about the mental health of actors, um, which is something that is starting to get a little bit of attention but had received relatively little attention before, ha- before that. There had been you know, sort of broad reports looking at. Uh, mental health in the arts as a whole but very little focusing specifically on actors Um, and I think the profession sort of the acting profession both has lots of kind of um, pressures in terms of lack of job security and financial stability things that that might you know cause stress and anxiety but also because it's a uh, a job that requires you potentially to kind of to enter quite extreme emotional states on stage um, I, I, there's a I don't know, an, I, I wondered if there was a kind of connection there between um, between what actors are being asked to do and how, and rehearsal and practices uh, and a sort of um, uh, and growing growing um, uh, numbers of um, actors suffering from various uh, mental health problems um, so yeah, I think I think it's something that the arts is beginning to, um, or the theatre industry particularly is beginning to pay more attention to. Um, there are a few few people doing research about this now, and also um, theatres are taking taking their responsibility as employers more seriously and sort of putting um, support in place. Like I know the the National Theatre, for instance, has someone who whose responsibility it is to kind of look after the, um, the mental well-being of everyone in that organisation. Um, so I think it's improving, but the difficulty is that, especially for actors, it's such an over-subscribed profession, and there might be those structures in place within individual theatres, but for actors who are sort of freelancing, who are in and out of work, there's still the possibility that, um, that those support structures aren't there when they're not in a job in a specific theatre.
0: Do you think there are stigmas as well from those outside the theatre industry um, put on the suffering artist mm. for, their, for their work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's this idea that persists, I think, f- for actors as well as for other artists that, you know, you kind of have to, you have to suffer a bit for your art mm. and that there's something almost kind of romantic about, yeah, ab- about, um, about suffering and about mental illness and um, And I think there's maybe also um, sometimes a perception that it's a kind of uh, almost frivolous um, profession um, and that therefore, um, I don't know, the same support structures don't need to be... In place, mm. um, something that um, that some of the actors I spoke, I, I interviewed spoke about was was yeah this sort of the, the perception that it's a little bit a kind of like fun and frivolous thing to do, and therefore you should just be grateful that you're getting mm. to do it at all, and there's, so there's a hesitance to complain at all about it, um, and also because as I mentioned there are so many actors competing for every single role, if there's anything that might be perceived as a weakness. Yeah. then hmm. then again that creates a stigma because you know it's even if even if the employers aren't, you know, explicitly um saying this, there's maybe if there are sort of twenty actors they're choosing from and they know that one actor, you know, suffer, suffers from, from mental health issues, that could be potentially a reason to, you know, remove um to sort of get cut them out of the running. Um so which was something again that uh, actors I spoke to were concerned about. And there are people coming forward and, and talking about their experiences, but I think there are lots more actors who uh, who wouldn't want to speak on the record about uh, about any kind of um, mental health problems because of that fear of then not being employed or of
1: yeah of sort of being viewed in a particular way by potential employers. So um. On David Tennant's podcast, uh, when he was talking to Olivia Colman, he was talking about um, that he had no preparation for, for encountering fame, um, and you know the, the effect that that had on your mm-hmm. mental health, or even you know not being successful, the effect that that would have as an actor. Do you think that it um, is potentially should be uh, one of the responsibilities of drama schools or universities mm-hmm. to sort of put that into the things that they teach actors?
2: Yeah, I think that's it's
1: that's interesting, and that's
2: again something that um, that came up when I was speaking to um, to actors and to other people in the theatre industry. This was suggested by a couple of people that, um, yeah, that, that drama schools have responsibility to make to better prepare actors for the industry they're entering, and also um, it was suggested that there should be as much emphasis on kind of getting out of certain emotional states as getting into them, because. I think acting training, actor training in this country is still dominated by uh, kind of Stanislavski and or, um, uh, or method. I mean, these two things aren't these aren't the same things, but um, Stanislavskian and method sort of um, training, uh, which is about accessing, um, you know, accessing emotion, in uh, and because of the prevalence of. That kind of actor training, there is a, a lot, as far as I understand it, anyway, anyway, a lot of emphasis on on accessing that emotion, sometimes quite uh, and and sometimes accessing quite extreme emotional states. But there's not the same emphasis on how do you then, how how when you've when you've finished the performance at the end of the night or when you've come to the end of a rehearsal, what's the process for sort of bringing yourself back out mm-hmm. of that. Um, which is perhaps also something that drama schools could look into Um, uh, yeah how how do they prepare people prepare actors for coming out of a role as much as going into a
1: role yeah so touching on drama schools um, so notoriously I think it could be said that actor training in this country is not the most nurturing environment in all the drama schools um, and I think it's quite competitive and it's quite a harsh teaching methods sometimes. Mm. Um, would you say that that's maybe the root of part of the mental health epidemic in the arts, or I mean, potentially. I'm now. I am certainly. I'm not
2: no expert on mm. drama schools and wouldn't want to pretend to be. I mean, I'm speaking very much, looking from the outside in and based on conversations with. People who have been to drama yeah. school. Um, obviously, I've not been to drama school myself, or taught at drama schools myself. So I didn't, wouldn't want to comment too much on their teaching practices without knowing that in detail. But I think potentially it could be one one of the factors. I think it's it's anything like this. It's unlikely to be down to one mm-hmm. one single factor. But I think it could it could contribute maybe.
0: Um, before we sort of leave the topic of mental health. Do you think that theatre and other arts industries, such as film, have a duty to be the ones to start talking about mental health to the sort of wider public um, because they often have the platform to be able to do so?
2: It's um, a good question. I think. I mean, I think that lots of um, any anyone with a platform to some extent has a responsibility to. Be talking about well, not only this. There are all sorts of things that that people with uh, platform I think have a responsibility to open up a conversation about. Um, certainly, this is one of them. Um, I suppose there there is an argument, perhaps that especially kind of mass media, sort of um, you know, film industry, for instance, has such uh, such an influence on the culture that it could make a, a big difference by leading on that conversation um yeah i, I think i think my i suppose my answer really is yes they do have a responsibility but i don't think that responsibility is limited to yeah. the arts i think there are lots and lots of different um uh, sectors in which there needs to be more of a conversation and not just a conversation because there can be i think there there is more conversation about mental health now um People, the stigma hasn't gone away, but, but people are more open than they were. There is more... The people are talking more about mental health, um, but then that needs to be backed up by tangible action, whether that's, you know, the NHS offer, offering um, uh, more support, shorter waiting times for, for people... Um, going to their gp with mental health problems obviously that's mm, <laughs> beyond yeah, but, the remit of the arts yeah. but but if we're looking specifically at the arts i think it has to that conversation has to be backed up by for instance theaters putting in place support structures um as you know places like national
1: theater are beginning to do can you tell us a bit about the work that you've done on arts education
2: yeah so this is um something i've not done a huge amount of work on but um that I got interested in uh, recently, um, sort of in response to uh, Slung Low's um, Cultural Community College, which is a really exciting, I think, really exciting new initiative, um, uh, which is essentially a, a sort of free at the point of access um, cultural uh, cultural college. Is there in the name, <laughs> um, uh, for anyone anyone who wants to come along, um, and it's cultural in the broadest sense, and that it encompasses um, everything from uh, kind of black blacksmithing um, through to uh, arts, through to um, sort of protest arts there, and, and many many things in between. Um, so it's kind of interested in this as a different model for arts education um, that. Is radically open as opposed to drama schools and universities, which uh, aren't accessible to everyone, and also aimed at, um, usually aimed at people at a kind of specific point in their lives and and their working lives. It's kind of preparing them for um, for a career, which obviously is important. But um, but there seems to be a loss in lots of places of arts education. For its own sake, or just you know, for the sake of learning, Um, and there's at the moment uh, a real kind of decline in uh, arts education in schools, which is going to then probably filter through to universities, um, which is you know a result of of a number of factors, but um, a lot of it seems to be driven by the government's emphasis on. you know what they sort of frame as core academic subjects um and the uh the new um english baccalaureate doesn't doesn't uh include arts subjects so mm. they're kind of being downgraded um so i, I say I'm, I'm by no means an expert in arts education but um it was something that interested me and i was kind of interested in alternative models i don't think that i don't think that Things like Slumlow's Cultural Community College are an argument against the importance of arts education in schools and universities and drama schools. And um, we should still be fighting for that education to be made available to as many people as possible or as many people who, who want to access it as possible. Um, but, yeah, I was kind of interested, particularly because it's the Culture and Community College exists completely outside of traditional educational structures. And it's built on a more of a kind of lifelong learning model, which is something that we don't seem to have as much of now. Although there maybe aren't as many opportunities for people to access learning throughout their lives that isn't instrumental. Um, So I'm kind of fascinated to see how that initiative um, uh, continues. I think it's it's meant it's sort of a four year scheme, I think I'm right in saying. And yeah it'll be fascinating to see how many people access that how um, how successful it is um, and whether it then kind of spawns uh, imitations elsewhere because it's it's a fascinating model and something that you wouldn't necessarily expect a theater company to be doing um, uh, but yeah so that that's um, a really it, it could it could indicate an interesting new direction for arts education but yeah i would be I wouldn't want to put that forward as a an argument against arts education elsewhere.
1: What would you say the impact of the government cutting arts education in schools and other places? what do you think the long term repercussions of that will be i mean it's it's always sort of
2: dangerous to predict yeah. <laughs> and yeah. difficult to predict things um, but I think there'll first of all be a kind of knock-on impact for universities mm-hmm. and, uh, and drama schools in terms of perhaps falling student numbers. Um, and then, longer term, there's the danger that uh, fewer people go on to um, pursue careers in the arts and that the arts um, uh, themselves sort of uh, suffer a, de- a decline. Um, the other danger... Is that may, even if the arts do continue to thrive, they will be domin- dom- even more dominated than they already are by um, people from quite a narrow background. Mm-hmm. It'll only be those who have the kind of independent means to pursue the arts um, who can do so, because um, those, those who, um, those from, from, from less privileged backgrounds, will find it even harder to to get into the arts if you know say if if arts education disappears from schools then it's it's sort of it's um you know independent classes things you have to pay to access which are the which are potentially then going to be the only way into the arts Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that already the arts kind of has has a, a bit of a um has a class problem and that it's dominated by um by middle by middle classes, that it's um, still uh, a sort of an overwhelmingly white um, se- sector. Um, there, you know, there have, it has it is less homogenous perhaps than it was, uh, you know, in the past. But um, certainly, it doesn't. Cu- the arts don't currently represent everybody in the mm-hmm. country. Um, and my fear would be that if arts education is lost from schools then we see the arts becoming more and more elite.
0: Uh, As an academic, you might have a slight bias towards this, um, but do you think there are different benefits between doing a drama degree or going to a drama school, uh, whether they sort of lead on to better careers or more opportunities?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's kind of hard to comment without an in-depth knowledge of how drama schools work. Um, One... Thing that um is kind of the, a sort of an interesting um statistic i found when i was doing doing some of um, my research um was that still and well this was from a survey a few years ago but at that point still the vast majority of working actors uh re, sort of regularly working actors had come through drama school so um so it was still the case that you know, that uh, the profession was hiring most of its actors um, from from those schools. Um, But then if you look at sort of independent theatre companies, for instance, lots of them are coming out of university. Um, uh, So this is is where it kind of relates back to to some of my research because I had this sense um, when I was looking at this so-called text-based Non text based, um, binary. I had the sense that to some to some degree, maybe um, actors, sort of people graduating from drama school, were then going on to um, uh, act in plays. You know, beginning with a script produced in in what we might think of as quite a kind of conventional way. Whereas uh, theater companies who were devising their own work were often coming through university. Mm-hmm. So I think to an extent. Um, you know it kind of depends on what career you want and one of those two paths might be more appropriate to the kind of career you're looking for but you know that's not to say that the only route to take after university is to form a, a company um you know also lots lots of uh, university graduate graduates go into like producing for instance it feels like there's producing is becoming um Uh, it's becoming much more of a popular role uh, if that makes sense so there I I feel like I see many more producers um, attached to theatre companies attached to theatres than previously it's much more creative role than it used to be I Mm -hmm. think a lot of those people are coming through university drama degrees um, as well as you know the huge range of other roles within the arts beyond the sort of most visible roles of actor and director so um, lots of people going on to be stage managers to work in, in marketing and press and all, all these other kinds of roles. Um, whereas I suppose a drama school education is still very geared, very much geared towards be, leaving and being a working actor. Mm. Um, so I think it's yeah a, a, a lot of it is down to what you want to do after that education. And I wouldn't want to suggest that you know you have to go to drama school to then be be successful as an actor because there are you know there are plenty of examples of uh, people who didn't go to drama school and have gone on to forge acting careers. Um, But I guess if I suppose the the benefit of a of a university degree is that it doesn't force you into a particular career within theatre at an early stage. You can kind of go through the degree work out what you're most interested in, and then pursue that when you graduate, rather than
1: from day one saying, you know, I want to be an actor or I want to be a director. So the, when you apply for funding from the Arts Council as a theatre company mm-hmm. or a theatre, there's a big emphasis on the education that you can provide as an establishment. Um, why do you think that it's the arts um, job to provide education for people?
2: Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I, I suppose it would maybe be more a question for the Arts Council. Right. Okay, yeah. um, I mean, I th- it's sort of one, one of the Arts Council's priorities is, is sort of education or outreach, or, you know, it has sort of many different um, uh, titles. And it's not, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think it's necessarily that every single, um, you know, project that applies to the Arts Council has to provide an educational function. Um, but certainly, you know, for certain kinds of funding, that that is that is important, and certainly for um, national portfolio organisations, mm-hmm. so organisations that receive regular Arts Council funding, um, I think they they need to demonstrate as you know a certain level of um, of sort of community outreach and, and education. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm just thinking about your the, the part of the question about you know why is should it be the mm-hmm. advanced yeah. responsibility to do that and i'm not I'm actually not not quite sure what I think about that um, I think that there's a danger of it becoming a tick box exercise if it is something that that um, uh, that the arts council places a real emphasis on because then people in can include that in a slightly cynical way. Mm-hmm. I think when it's when it's really part of a Um, an organisation's sort of mission and purpose um, and is connected to the other work that it does I think it can be really valuable but I don't know whether that you know whether every single theatre company or arts organisation should necessarily have, have to do that as part of their role you know it might there might be an argument for a company who just make you know incredible um you know aesthetically beautiful work um or who are sort of innovating in some other way and what you know why is it necessary to kind of tack something on to their main purpose and vision um in order to tick a box somewhere um i suppose that's always the danger when you begin to incentivize anything with the sort of the best of intentions um, there's always there's always a risk that it then does just become a cynical box sticking exercise. So yeah, so that's that's a bit of an indecisive answer to that question, but
1: I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. So um, you've written recently about problematic revivals. Do you mm. want to chat to us a bit about that? Uh, what would sure. you consider to be a problematic revival?
2: Um, well, I was. So I started thinking about this after seeing a production of um, Paint Your Wagon at uh, the Liverpool Everyman last year. Um, it's a musical that I wasn't really familiar with before I went to see it. Um, and it's kind of, an it's, it's an interesting show because in some, it has some sort of like surprisingly progressive um, sentiments and then a lot of, uh, you know, old-fashioned misogyny. <laughs> um, and it's, and I think that you know the the makers were really aware of that when they revived it, and they certainly weren't sort of trying to paper over um the, the inherent misogyny in the show. But it kind of got me thinking about whether shows like that really need to be revived, um, or whether there is or whether there are sort of certain um, certain plays, certain musicals that we should just be kind of Resigning to the, um, uh, you know, I was gonna say to the rubber sheet. That sounds (laughs) that sounds uh, really really negative. But um, well, you know, but do we do we still need to give the the degree of attention that we do give to to certain um, plays which um, express views or um, uh, or have sort of um, or characters represented in ways that we would now find um abhorrent or problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an interesting conversation about this with um, Rashdash, um, who uh, I think a great theatre company, um, <laughs> who uh, did a show uh, last year um, called Three Sisters, which was to some extent a version of Chekhov's play Three Sisters, but was also really very far from being a revival of that play. Um, and they made that show kind of in, as a response, as a sort of provocation in response to people saying to them, "Well, you know, if you want to get bigger audiences, if you want to get bigger commissions, then you, you need to do a classic." And they were sort of, they were kind of going, "Well, why do we need to do a classic? Why, why do we, as a as a, a female a company, as a company of three women, um, need to, you know, put on a load of plays by dead white men?" Um, and yeah, I sort of had, had interesting chats with them and with a director called Jude Christian who, who has worked with um, Rush Dash in the past about um, whether it is better to take on those classics and, um, and grapple with the things that are problematic within them and kind of deconstruct them, or whether we should just just stop producing certain plays. So should we just stop putting on Taming of the Shoe, for instance? Um, and I'm, I'm still, I haven't reached a, a, an absolute conclusion on that point. I think that, I think that you can do really interesting things by kind of picking apart a play that you find problematic. Um, but then there is, I'm, I also sort of have a lot of sympathy for the argument that by continuing to put these things on, no matter how kind of deconstructive your approach, you are still perpetuating the kind of cultural, value and authority assigned to certain certain authors and certain plays rather than promoting new work from a broader range of voices. Mm. So I mean I guess the sort of the com- the compromise would be, yes, okay, we, we can't completely ignore the dramatic canon that we've inherited and we maybe have to just take a more critical approach to those plays whilst equally committing to producing new work and producing new work that represents a broader range of viewpoints than we find in the dramatic canon. So,
1: do you think that if if you were to put on a revival that has problematic themes in it, it's not enough for the theatre company, for example, to assume that the audience can can work those things out by themselves? Do you think that there's a responsibility to, to for the artist to label this as, this is wrong and this is not what we believe?
2: Um, mm, That's a tricky one, because it... You don't want to be making, you know, assuming that your audience are stupid, essentially. You know, there's there's a danger that by um, pointing these things out too much, you're then making an audience feel like they've had all the work done for them. And actually, that might, they might then therefore be less critical mm-hmm. because because it feels like they're just, um, you know, that they're, they're being delivered a kind of didactic message about why this is wrong. Um so, I'd always be a kind of wary of work that treats audience members as though they can't work stuff out for themselves. Um, so I certainly wouldn't want to prescribe and i well, I don't think anyway as a as a theater critic, it's my kind of um mm. I'm not really in the position to prescribe what anyone should make um I can say what i you know I can say what I think about the work that is made and 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 express an opinion. I don't think I could ever say this is the only way that, some, that such and such play should be produced um, but maybe I would personally feel that theatre makers should ask those questions of the play themselves whether or not they then explicitly stage those questions mm-hmm. about the play as part of their production. Um, I think that you know that it's always well I'd hope that theatre makers would approach any play with a kind of um, a critical and uh, and sort of in- interrogative
1: um, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, approach. I would say approach twice. But, you know. <laughs> um, um, as a theatre critic, um, you are quite interested in object- objectivity versus subjectivity. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I think there
2: has been traditionally... A view of the theatre critic as speaking from some kind of objective, authoritative position. Um, And this was perhaps exacerbated by the fact that until quite recently there were relatively few critical voices out there. So, you know, there would be a few, uh, sort of, I don't know, 10 national newspaper critics maybe. Um, who would be passing judgment on all the shows that were opening? And they were considered voices of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and we you see that, you know, even for instance, in uh, kind of uh, academic books, in, in theatre history books that then use those judgments of a few critics as evidence of the audience reception of a show from 50, 100 years ago, or whatever. Um, when of course, actually, they're only those people are just individuals expressing an individual opinion. It's maybe it's an expert opinion because they've seen a lot of theatre, um, but uh, I have a problem with the idea that any critic can be uh, somehow objective because I think that implies an ability to kind of stand outside of one's own tastes and experiences, um, and. Be completely neutral, and I think none of us none of us are completely neutral. We have our own tastes, we have our own political views, we have our own experiences, um, both theatre-going experiences and life experiences, and we bring all of that with us to the theatre, whether or not we're a critic. Um, so, for I suppose for a long time, I've been um, yeah trying to when I talk about theatre criticism or when I've sort of reflected about th- on theatre criticism in writing. Um, tried to reinforce the idea that it is just subjective Um, and in some of my writing on my blog and for Exeant as well in the past I played around more with with what it might mean to foreground that that subjectivity and to you know to really make it clear to readers that this is just my opinion Mm -hmm. um, uh, and to kind of reflect on my own thinking about a show. I suppose you might think of it as a kind of meta criticism. <laughs> um, there's less space to do that in kind of mainstream review formats. So you know, if I write a review for the Guardian or the Stage, especially if it's you know quite short word count, I can't sort of reflect you know really on my own my own approach to the show. So perhaps that subjectivity is isn't foregrounded in the same way. But I think. You know, I hope that readers would approach a review just as the opinion of that critic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason you might care maybe more about that critic's opinion than, than you know, and anyone else who sort of walked out of the theatre that night is because they've seen quite a lot of the theatre and spend a lot of their, their lives thinking about theatre. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that's the right opinion about that show um i think one of the interesting things about the opening out of criticism to more critical voices is that hopefully readers can um can sort of work out which critics tastes align with their own and go okay i tend to you know i tend to think uh you know i tend to think the same as lynn Gardner, or i tend to think the same as this blogger over here and um so i'll look out for what they say about that show and then if they like it maybe i'll like it um and I think also there's a there's an interesting sort of new generation now of um, of bloggers, theatre critics who who are really doing interesting stuff with with subjectivity and foregrounding subjectivity in the way that I said I sort of used to experiment with more um, and now often don't have the space or time to do. But I think there are lots of really interesting writers, sort of a bit younger than me, who've come come along. Um, and saying the kind of next generation of theatre critics who um, who are really smashing that mm-hmm. idea of objectivity
1: so hopefully it's on its way out. So this is quite a broad question but as a theater critic what what would you say sort of is a good sh- show in a nutshell? Like uh, what do you look for? I mean that's kind of that's an impossible question yeah. to answer because
2: I think you well I try to judge judge each show, Um, sort of on its own terms obviously you're bringing in external criteria or not criteria as such but you you know you are obviously comparing it to other theatre going experiences especially if it's a revival you know you can't help but kind of compare it to other versions of the play that you've seen but I think that what makes a good show depends on what kind of show it is Mm -hmm. if that makes sense so um, I've seen, for instance, some you know really really brilliant shows in rooms above pubs. Um, one example um, from God probably longer ago, probably like seven years ago now, six seven years ago now. Um, there was a really brilliant production of Mercury Fair on at the Old Red Line. It was um, one of the most sort of intense theatre-going experiences uh, that I can remember. Um, and we were all kind of crammed into this tiny space. And it was amazing. It was really memorable. That will sort of stay with me, I think, you know, for the re- for sort of the rest of my um, uh, reviewing career. Um, but that, the things that made that show great wouldn't work on the Olivier, the stage mm-hmm. of the um, Olivier at the National Theatre. So... And it would be unfair, and it would also be unfair to judge that show in a room above a pub by the same uh, kind of against the same sort of production values as something at the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, so that's sort of not really an answer to your question. If you're
1: reviewing a a, a sort of um, amateur company's show at the Fringe for the Guardian mm-hmm. and you've also reviewed something at the the National for The Guardian do you then adapt to your sort of scale your
2: yeah yeah I mean I, well first of all I mean I wouldn't the I wouldn't review anything by um, an amateur company for The Guardian no. well there are sort of slight exceptions to that in that for instance I reviewed um, Everything is Possible at uh, mm-hmm. York Theatre Royal which was um, a you know, community mm-hmm. theatre production but it was uh, led by professional theatre makers and Kind of you know had the backing of a the big theatre behind it. So there are sort of exceptions like that, but generally publications like The Guardian wouldn't review amateur work. So there are questions about yeah, why not? Um I think it I mean it's partly just uh that's sort of the the way things have, have panned out and that that's sort of a, it's more a kind of an established way of doing things. I suppose also if if um if it opened out review if it opened out to review amateur shows as well as professional shows there would be far you know far too much to cover I think part and then partly I think it's because it would be deemed to some extent unfair to um to review uh, amateur productions and certainly to hold them up to the same standards as professional productions um so there are you know uh, pr- and numerous reasons that I'm sure the gu- you know, sort of the gu- pe- editors at The Guardian would be able to give you a, a better answer to that question. Um, but there are of course blurry lines now between amateur and professionals. So you know I've reviewed fringe shows mm. where probably quite a lot of the people weren't getting paid or maybe they were, um on a profit share model so you know people were only only getting a share of whatever profits if any profits were made from from that production um, so there are sort of you know gray areas um, uh, but generally sort of the general rule I'd only really review professional theatre but of course there is then a huge range within mm-hmm. that you know all the way from sort of Big commercial shows at one end of the spectrum to those fringe shows where potentially people aren't even get aren't actually getting paid, although it's considered professional. Um, so, I mean, it's not as though I have a kind of sliding scale that I get out and go, okay, well, these are the criteria for a fringe show and these are the criteria for a show at national theatre. Um, but I suppose I just approach it with a slight different set of expectations because it would be sort of unfair and kind of irrational to have the same set of expectations for a show at the National Theatre or for a show at the York Theatre Royal um, as, you know, for a show in a, as I said before, in a room above a pub working with um, a very limited budget. Um, I think you can still, you can achieve a huge amount without massive, the resources of a big subsidised theatre or a big commercial producer. Um, but... But yeah, there's an extent to which you need to take into account the um, the resources that the theatre makers have at their disposal and also um, what the work itself is trying to do. Um, so I, I try and first of all think, OK, what, I'll try and judge the piece of work on its own terms. And then, of course, taste comes into that at some point. Um, so something might be succeeding, you know... At, doing really well in its own terms but i but it's not quite my cup of tea or i think it could be more ambitious or something like that so um i think it's useful as a critic to think firstly about the context of a piece what it's tra- trying to achieve um and then to kind of apply your own personal taste and criteria to it, if that makes sense
0: uh, when you do go into a piece and when you're reviewing something do you are you conscious of your subjectivity then or do you try and put everything sort of past experiences in a box and not think about it or do you kind of accept that it's there and try and be as open as possible about it
2: I always try and go into anything with an open mind but I'm also conscious of the fact that I you know do have certain tastes and expectations so it's kind of a balance between those two mm-hmm. things I would say um, because you know sometimes if I'm going to review something and you know I know I haven't liked that that playwright or that company's previous work or if it's a genre that is not really my cup of tea I you know I am kind of in one and on the one hand I'm sort of conscious of that and can't completely set that to one side but I will always go in and go hoping to be hoping to be surprised and hoping you know to um yeah to have my to have my mind opened or my expectations um exceeded Uh, So, I mean, uh, and there have been plenty of occasions where I've gone into something going, you know, partly thinking I'm not quite sure about this and then come out going, wow, actually that, you know, that that was brilliant. Um, So I think to try and completely set all those things to one side is a bit disingenuous. But I, you know, I'd hope any critic would always maintain a relatively open mind and not kind of shut off the possibility of something surprising them.
1: How do you put aside potential guilt of um saying you didn't like a show and criticizing for example an Mm -hmm. actor's performance um it's it's really difficult mm -hmm. um and I think that you don't
2: in some ways you don't completely want to put that to one side because um you're still writing about human beings at the end of the day and it's useful to remember that Yeah. yeah um because I think if you if you sort of shut that out entirely, you can become really sort of you know mal- malicious and, and callous <laughs> in your criticism. And I've read reviews like that, which can sometimes be very entertaining to read, mm-hmm. but but you know you, you can't imagine that critic would happily say the same thing to that, you know, actor's or director's face. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I try try to not be kind of um, malicious for the sake of it in my criticism, mm-hmm. but but you also have to accept that it is part of your job to critique and uh, potentially to criticise, uh, and that if if something if you think something hasn't worked, it's also your responsibility to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always easy, and you know it's especially hard if you know there are a theatre maker whose work you've previously really liked and, and, and respected and admired or sometimes you know there are theatre makers who I know a little bit because I've interviewed them a few times maybe um, and who again I sort of really respect as artists then I see something of theirs that just doesn't work and those are always the hardest reviews to write because you know you what you sort of feel some degree of kind of connection with that person it's not you know I'm not talking about being friends with them but just having that, um, that knowledge knowledge of them and their work um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's tough sometimes but I think it's important to be honest in those situations and generally like in, in those kind of scenarios the th- those theatre makers are kind of uh, they, they respect that, that honesty um, ha- you know, you'll get the occasional scenario where someone is very upset with something you've written and you maybe get a bit of backlash from it um, but you kind of have to accept that as a possibility of the, you know when you, when you go into a job like this. People aren't always going to agree with what you say
1: yeah. <laughs> or like what you say. <laughs> um, have you got anything else? No, I I'm, I'm What time go. are we on?
0: 50, oh, 50 wow, minutes.
1: that flew by. I thought it was about half an hour. Should we do the... We've, so, we've asked people um, what their favourite shows was, what, what up they're up looking for. Then. Well,
0: we've
1: that. cut them out because we've kind of been like, well, it's over now. So. <laughs> but actually, I think I think we should.
0: The advice thing, at least. Oh, the advice thing. Yeah. Sorry,
1: we've mm-hmm. not done this for what, a month and a half? <laughs> we've totally forgotten yeah, we how to interview. We went down for um, did
0: three in one day. Uh, so, so, so then, then we were sick. fine
1: for a month. Um, yeah, so we ask. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so, have you got any advice for people going wanting to go into theatre academia or arts journalism or um, that side of the arts? Um, so I suppose my advice would probably differ for
2: depending on whether you want to go into arts journalism or into academia. Although you know they they oft quite a few people kind of combine those two roles, and there are definitely um, uh, kind of qualities and skills that are transferable across the two. Um, and for me, uh, it's really um, interesting to do those two things alongside one another. Um, for for anyone wanting to get into arts journalism, I would say start by just setting up a blog. Um, it's so it's never been easier to um, publish your own work. Um, it doesn't cost any money. You can just set up a blog with um, with WordPress, for example. Um, there are other blogging sites available, but that's the <laughs> that's the site that, that I use and I'm familiar with. And it's um, you know it, you can within a matter of minutes you can set up a blog. Um, I think Twitter can be really useful as a tool when you're first starting out as well. Um, I say this very conscious of the fact that my Twitter page has been inactive for over a year, I think. Oh. <laughs> With maybe a, br- maybe a brief, uh, I think I made a brief exception to that to tweet about a few Edinburgh shows. Um, so I made a personal decision not, really, not to really use Twitter anymore. But when I first started out, it was really useful for just joining in conversations about theatre, and... Um, getting my work out there Um, and you have to use it as a kind of uh as as a social um tool not just a kind of self-promotional tool so um to kind of get the most out of it it, you need to keep up with conversations join in conversations genuinely interact with people rather than just like posting links to your latest blog post Um, so those would be two key things to get started and then um seek advice from people who are already in that field um I you know I remember sending emails to to sort of already established arts journalists just saying can I buy you coffee and ask you a few questions and people were all very generous with their time uh gave me lots of really useful advice and then you start to feel like you're part of a kind of community Mm -hmm. rather than just writing on your own and sending things out into the void um and then once you've established a bit of uh, kind of confidence and got and you have a bit of a portfolio, um, uh, to to then to send send to people, just just email editors, um, just make contact. Um, if you have a good idea for a, for an article, have a go at pitching it. Um, that was that was certainly what worked for me. Um, and it's very scary the first time you send an email to, like, the theatre editor of The Guardian, for instance. Um, but, you know, if you've got good ideas and if you sort of politely persist and, uh, and, and you know, keep pitching those ideas, then um, hopefully at some point they get picked up. Um Although it's, it is worth saying that, you know, I think it is getting harder to have a full-time career as an arts journalist. There are very few full-time paid roles. It seems to be moving much more to a kind of freelance culture, mm-hmm. um, which is good in one sense in that it me- allows for a wider range of voices to be to be represented. Um, but it is, yeah, it's kind of harder to make a living from. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone to think that, you know, you can just go and get a you know get a full-time job writing about theater um, it's it's kind of it's, it's, it's never been easier to to publish your reviews your thoughts on theater but um, it is it is kind of getting harder to sustain that as a full-time career um, which is why I think you know combining it with something else can work quite well and for me theater academia has um, has been a good thing to combine it with um, there is much more of a I guess quite a kind of rigid, uh, career path to follow to enter academia in that once you've done your undergraduate graduate degree you have to then go do a master's do a PhD and then apply for research positions and teaching jobs um, so there's 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 a relatively set career path there um, and uh, sort of moving you know moving from one stage to the next is is obviously key um, I think also because um, the academic job market is really competitive now for people who are sort of maybe already on that path, who are staff who are doing a master's or maybe starting a PhD, it's really worth doing as much as you can in the early stages of that career. So even whilst just doing your PhD, if you can publish elsewhere, if you can do other little bits of research on the side, just get your, get your voice out there one way or another. Um, it will give you a better chance when you get to the end of the PhD. Um, so and and there does seem to be a move now towards what get called portfolio careers. I kind of hate that phrase, but I suppose um, I do have what would be defined as a portfolio <laughs> career, um, and uh, it can be really interesting and really rewarding. Um, it does mean you have to kind of switch your brain from one thing mm. thing to another and manage your time really well um but it's certainly certainly if you're looking into either arts journalism or theater theater academia it's worth thinking about kind of diversifying a bit Mm -hmm. and and trying out different uh different things on the side um because it might you know it might not be um viable to have a full-time career in one or the other just because of the way those job markets are at the moment and things may change but um at the moment it's a sort of slightly unstable
1: time for
0: those two sectors. Mm.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine, for coming to talk to us. We found it super interesting.
1: Join us next time for more theatre-related stories, advice and insights.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, then as always, please give us a nice review and tell your friends and family where to find us.
1: If you haven't already listened to the other episodes, then they're there to listen to. See you soon. Bye!
0: Bye!